Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Hello and welcome to the 49th episode of My on Mondays. My guest today is Jacob Midas, a luthier and bowmaker based in Portland, Oregon. In our discussion, Jacob talks about his own path into the craft of luthery, its practical aspects as well as some of the more mysterious, along with the very surprising factors that affect instrument making on a global scale. You are the only luthier that I know aside from my father. <laughs> and so I, I don't, you know, I don't have a, a whole big um, sort of menagerie of, of luthier social life. So, <laughs> well, most people don't. Yeah. Um, except for us luthiers, where we're just <laughs> surrounded by it. Yeah. And living I bet. and breathing it. Well, I guess maybe before luthery, I imagine you're also a musician because most. I can't imagine a luthier not also playing music. Um, yeah, I personally, yeah, I would be less interested in this work if I didn't play. Mm -hmm. But I do know quite a few successful makers who just don't play at all. You're like, kidding. No, no music. And probably more in the European tradition of luthiery, where it, it's treated more like a, a trade in Europe. Uh -huh. There's still the mystique and artistry association that you see in America, but um, in France and Italy and England, even there's there's these schools that have been around for hundreds of years. So they cater to kids from a young age. So it's it's more of like a trade in some ways in Europe than like I would say in America. It almost has a sort of mystical magic craft <laughs> art sensibility, which is great. Um, okay. And it, that element can be exploited a bit in America too, I feel like. But so in, in Europe, I, I've, in my experience, and there's a, more of a ratio of people who don't play music and who are possibly more coming at it from like a technician vantage point. Wow, that's wild. Um, I, I would have never imagined that. Yeah, whereas in America, a lot of people come to it possibly a little later in life mm -hmm. and out of a sort of um quote unquote the passion of luthiery yeah and um that's more an identity i think we've cultivated in america like this the passion element the um which I, for me would equate a bit with the um the mysticization of the craft mm -hmm. um well i so... wonder if some of the difference between here and europe because you say it's treated like much more like a trade there one thing that my I know from my dad is like when he got into it, he had to apprentice because there were no schools. Maybe that is some of the difference. That 
That is a difference. Mm -hmm. Although in America now, there's more schools popping up as well. Yeah, that's what he said. And did you so, go to school or did you apprentice? No, I I apprenticed. Um, so for violin making, there's at least four schools I know of, and probably more. Mm -hmm. And then summer summer programs and university programs here and there. Okay. Um, probably five to ten official programs for violin making, and there's only. Um, one place I think of that offers courses in bow making and I'm I'm particularly a bow specialist so I, I would call myself a luthier because I do instrument repair and restoration and I've, I've been trained in it mm -hmm. um, and I prefer the term luthier than what a, the official term for bow makers in French is archetier and which is a cool word, but it sounds more pretentious uh -huh. in a way. So yeah. I, I just stick with flutes here because it's mm -hmm. more general. But mm -hmm. I am more of a bow specialist. And there's only, like I said, just a handful of workshops around the country where you can study. So for bow making, you really, you pretty much have to apprentice with somebody to get to a higher level. Mm -hmm. So I began my studies when I was, out of college, uh, like got a bachelor's degree in ethnomusicology and then, and I uh, wrote my thesis particularly on bowed instruments. So I, I was already getting interested in the craft and had woodworking and jewelry making experience. So mm -hmm. working at a violin shop after college, I met bow makers and one of them in particular, um, Michael Yates took me under his wing and trained me um in new york city in his shop to um do basic bow maintenance work and so that was the start mm -hmm. of my education just doing the and then i went on further with him over the years okay right. and so you were a musician before that and studying ethnomusicology what was what was your entry into music how old were you when you got started yeah i started at a young age um and felt a little ambivalent about it. Really? Through, yeah, like I wasn't, it was kind of like something my parents asked me to do. And then, uh -huh. um, but I was more interested in skateboarding. So I quit uh -huh. in middle school and then in high school. What did you play? I, it, what, were you playing stringed instruments back then too? Yeah, I played violin. Okay. And then, yeah, in high school, I got interested in it again. And, so when I was 16, I started taking lessons again on my own volition. And that was really helpful Okay. Like choose to play. Mm -hmm. And then I was, got really into it in high school and college, even though I was like way behind other students my age, but I, I was very committed to trying to get into um, classical technique. And mm -hmm. there are some pieces that were really hard that I wanted to be able to play. Mm -hmm. okay. So I, yeah, I was pretty driven back then. Yeah. And you continue to play then as well? Yeah, I'm not on the classical track so much, but I play mm -hmm. more like um, improvisational ambient music with a percussionist and um, some folk traditional music too. Like um, I was in a band for years that played Balkan dance oh. music. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. And then I played American folk music and different traditions and some experimental mm -hmm. stuff as well. 
So I guess um, one of the things that I'm curious about is is what attracted you to the work what like what was the initial spark for you was there something in particular was it just a a set of circumstances of one thing leading to another that sort of got you interested how did it come about for you because it's it's not super common really i think initially i wanted to be a violin maker and that Mm -hmm. was that was through playing and just sort of being fascinated by the complexity of the violin as an object and being kind of blown away by how they were made mm-hmm. and it, it was at a time in my life where I was like trying to pursue things that I just couldn't understand like I, I studied Chinese language in college and I think mm-hmm. my interest in in violins was almost similar in a way where I was like I don't understand can't fathom how this came together you know huh. so I want to do it oh interesting um, so that was that was part of the draw, but also like being involved in a, a craft, which I was already drawn to. Like I was a visual artist, and mm-hmm. or I, I am a visual artist, and um, I had made furniture, my dad's furniture maker. So I grew up around that. And as a you know striving violinist, it was just kind of this way of drawing all that together mm-hmm. into one field. So it was really appealing to me. Okay. As, like, an occupation and then as i worked in a shop i got more interested in the mystique of bows because bows are like bows are less understood and there's less makers and there's a little bit like magic elements to them in the sense hmm. that they're like um musicians often comparing to the wand hmm. um like you have to choose your wand because it's mm-hmm. like the thing that activates the instrument and they all behave differently and draw different sounds. And so there's this sort of magic to it that I think is achieved, you know, with a combination of like study and actual technical elements, but there's always bows that just don't make any sense on a technical level, but just work incredibly. So oh, interesting. that appealed to me. So now I'm I'm a bow specialist, mm-hmm. but I, I still do my luthier work as well, meaning the upkeep of violins, violas, and cellos. So my shop is kind of like a full service shop mm-hmm. with an emphasis on um on the bows. I was looking at your website, and one of the things that you have on there is period bows, which I find really interesting. And um, you have one of them listed as the design being from around 1775. Can you tell us a little bit, bit about this bow in particular, of why you chose this particular bow? Is there something special about it? Or is that, you know, sort of one of the few that, that you could find from that period? What is it about this bow that you makes you choose to make it in particular? that was that was a commission from a player who was looking for what they call a transitional bow or a classical mm-hmm. bow so okay. that era of classical music is um the era of like mozart and haydn and mm-hmm. the bow was evolving at that time away from a curve that had gone upward away from the instrument and a curve that was starting to curve down mm, toward mm-hmm. the instrument when you play. Yeah. 
and that that curvature downward allowed for all this new technique um so the development of classical music or what we call classical in general like compositional western music like the bow evolved with it or you could say that the new composition evolved with the bow mm-hmm. so as the bow changed it allowed musicians to do new things and then that changed music so it was kind of a dialectical relationship probably it was very complex sort of interplay of the new technique that musicians could do and also okay. the craftsmen trying to meet the needs of the new composition so in that era you still have or today you still have musicians who are looking for that era of bow because it kind of gives a different lighter bouncy vibrant feel so a musician had approached me and asked for that period and i made it inspired by Francois Xavier Tort, who's considered sort of the forefather of contemporary making in the same way that, you know, most people know the name Stradivarius Mm -hmm. um, as being the sort of getting credit for the creating the instrument model that is the archetype for all instruments after, you know, everybody's striving to create a Stradivarius sort of sound. Mm Mm-hmm. Not everybody, but it it remains a very high goal mark. So yeah. Francois Xavier Tort is the equivalent for bows, and he he helped to usher in a sort of new era of bow making, popularizing okay. different elements of what are the standard today. So that's the story with that bow, and it's now being played with the I believe the Portland Baroque Orchestra. Very cool. So I'm curious, so you work in Portland, and but you also, you worked in New York and Philadelphia and Taipei before you s- opened your own business. Portland's your hometown, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I went to college in New York and mm-hmm. then I moved back here. I worked in a violin shop for a while and then just traveled for a bit. In my 20s, like I went to Shanghai and then I ended up in New York where I did that apprenticeship for bow work and then bow making and and then had the amazing strange wonderful experience of working in like uh fancy violin shops in the upper west side and mm. you know working with the uh, big orchestras in town and soloists passing through and going to carnegie hall with free tickets and mm. like so it was like this really lucky serendipitous oh yeah experience of getting thrown into the sort of upper echelon of like luthiery slash bow work and um yeah it was super fun as a 20 something wow. to have access like that as you know at the time i was like in how much money new york's expensive i was like mm-hmm. more of an an artist type living in a warehouse with 16 people <laughs> you know like warehouse rooms with no windows and like kind of roughing it in new york yeah yeah. yet going to carnegie hall and and the big concert halls and my scruffy suit jacket that sounds incredible for me it was super fun Mm -hmm. period to kind of be have access to that elite world of classical music and then also the more down-home artist scene that i 
had another foot in. So I'm curious because I didn't realize that you were a visual artist as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that work that you do? Well, now it's turned more into just uh, sketching and watercolors here and there. And mm-hmm. like, I never really developed a full-fledged identity as a visual artist, but I've just really enjoy drawing yeah. and so and in some ways like one thing about this craft is that it's allowed me to continue creative work without the pressure of identity around it mm-hmm. because it's like I have this you know footing and foundation and this other craft and therefore with my art practice it can just it's more of an outlet and needs to be more playful since my Luthery is so exacting and technical. And like, um, mm-hmm. So it's been kind of liberating that way. But it also means that I don't put a lot of hours consecutively into mm-hmm. it. But, um, but it's something so I, that you enjoy doing and it, and it is fulfilling. Totally. Yeah. yeah it's like joyful. Yeah. And fun. And, that's the best. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's really... I mean, I feel like that's really where it's at. You know, I think so many people try to make a living from their art and it's it's really, really great if they can. You know, I'm not, I'm certainly not poo-pooing that idea at all. But I think for a lot of people, it really does end up taking a lot of the initial joy which is why they got into it in the first place, you know, so. Right. Yeah, and that's been And then they quit completely if they can't, you know, there's other people who quit completely if they can't make a living from it. So it's really nice that you found that balance. Yeah, well, striving to find the balance, really. (laughs) There's been other times where I felt like I had it. Like, after living in New York, I moved to Philadelphia, and it was a lot more affordable there and mm-hmm. i found a dream job at this shop called vintage instruments where they gave me a lot of freedom of time mm-hmm. and so i could work 20 to 30 hours a week and and then the rest of the time i played in a band and i i spent more time doing video art or making videos and like drawing and um, mm-hmm. doing working with dance choreographers and so that period which was like between 2005 and 2011 was like something probably I'll always be trying to get back to. Whereas that mm-hmm. really achieved that balance. Um, but I, after living in Philadelphia, I moved back to Portland and bought a house and started my own shop. What and made you decide to move back? My family's here oh, okay. in the landscape, the mountains mm-hmm. are here. And I, always had a divide between east and west coast where Mm -hmm. family on the west friends on the east work on the east coast you know um so i just reached a point i guess it was my mid-30s where i just i couldn't fathom doing that plane trip over Mm -hmm. and over and over the rest of my life Um, and i i still do i mean to visit friends but Mm -hmm. it's 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 different now that i'm rooted here Mm -hmm. so and I'd reached a point in my training where I felt like I was, I'd absorbed so much, like working in the big shops in New York and Philadelphia that I was kind of ready to go on my own, you know, mm-hmm. like start my own uh, shop. So the balance in terms of art and what I would call my creative art 
drawing, music making, composition, mm-hmm. um, etc. Um, with my craft slash business, it's pretty out of balance right now in terms of like I I have a lot of work to do, but it's fine because I'm I'm very grateful for the amount of work and the client base that I have. Mm-hmm. I guess this brings me to my next question when you talk about uh, the work and your clients. This is something I'm just kind of curious about and maybe I maybe this is me romanticizing the process a little bit, but I imagine that you you develop a relationship with some of your clients and do do you sort of do the same thing with their instruments? I mean, do you have I'm curious you have if you have um say like a particular process when working with a new instrument is there something that you look for what what is your process when you're sort of meeting a new instrument yeah oh that's a good question um yeah because it is integral like meeting the musician and their instrument becomes Mm -hmm. kind of unified to an extent and then you see the relationship the musician has with the instrument slash their music Mm -hmm. and yeah so it's there's a lot of time spent just kind of chatting about that and listening to him play Mm -hmm. so a violist with the Oregon Symphony recently came over and I we hadn't met before and he was having trouble with his viola in terms of the tone so um what I'll do is just have him play and listen to it you know from some distance and then up close and and then i'll play it a little bit so i get a sense and have us both get used to hearing it in the space and then after that i'll like do some analysis and measurements and like just seeing where certain parts are in relation to each other and there's all sorts of minor tweaks that can be done in terms of improving sound and technique so and what i'm talking about now is more like a sound adjustment sort of experience but that will eventually come into play even if it's somebody at first coming in for a simple bow maintenance issue like if you know a client long enough there will be the sound adjustment and that's really Mm -hmm. the most profound sort of psychological emotional relating it's almost like counseling because hmm. professional musician musicians develop this like really intense relationship with their instrument because mm-hmm. they spend like three hours with it a day and yeah. so much of their self-esteem is caught up in it and their identity and it gets it gets really melded into mm-hmm. one so these sound adjustments become particularly charged moments there's like some voodoo within it as well as mm-hmm. like very technical mm-hmm. tricks and yeah. things that are, and for some people there will be more emotional work that's being done as opposed to others who are just more rooted in the pragmatic so mm-hmm. i bring up the sound adjustment just because in terms of relationships that's the the most um sort of powerful intense part of the job to mm-hmm. an extent and that's where you really learn, you know, what what people are looking for and their their past relationship with the instrument. Fascinating. Yeah, and over time, I imagine becomes more and more refined with each right. with each visit. Yeah, and that's what's been so cool about this chapter of my career, having my own shop, 
and it's just me and it's like my remodeled garage Mm -hmm. and whereas in new york and philadelphia i worked in these big shops and the instruments would be received by somebody else downstairs then it's handed to you with some sort of description like you know do this do that or like player doesn't like such and such overtone or there's a buzz and so you Mm -hmm. you miss out on that like actual relationship i was still able to do that with quite a few musicians in philadelphia Mm -hmm. who i'm still friends with today but like now it's integral it's mandatory it's like that relationship is what's happening and that's super cool and meaningful for me it's like Mm -hmm. being knowing the musician and what they're up to and going to the shows Mm -hmm. it's like being more a part of the music scene here and luckily i'd say all my clients i'm really excited about their music making and their um approach and whatnot um and that's somewhat filtered by my shop setup it's a word of mouth only Mm, backyard garage situation it's not a big mini emporium violin shop (laughs) it's like a it's kind of the, the artisanal model or something, but yeah. I'm really well, enjoying it. And, and that, that speaks to the work that you're doing if if you're not doing advertising, advertising and it's word of mouth only and you're still getting that amount of of work where you say you're you're struggling to keep the balance, you know? So that says a lot about the relationships that you're building. Yeah, it's, well, it's been, I've, I realized that in the Northwest, there's just not that many people doing bow work in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm still doing instrument work, but there's a, seriously a dearth of people doing professional level bow work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's more work than I can handle. Okay. And there's not many people I can refer to. So mm-hmm. I'm, I've tried teaching more people. It hasn't, hand out but um there's a new prospect of somebody i'm excited to teach so so within bow making is there something in particular that you specialize in or that you're known for or is it just bows in general well I, the most basic thing to do on a bow is and that everybody has to have done is putting new hair in the bow mm-hmm. and if you're playing a couple hours a day you probably need to get it done two to four times a year depending on how mm-hmm fastidious you are so that's how i cultivated a lot of my relationships and that's turned to some bow orders and instrument sales or just like new relationships it's a good foundational mm-hmm. sort of trust to develop with so it's so not like people are are oh you're known for making this particular design of I, I don't I don't know anything about violins but frog or something you uh, know? And... yeah yeah good use of a term um not at this point I'm mm-hmm. kind of with making a more of a generalist a lot of makers maybe only make modern bows meaning mm-hmm. they like they wouldn't make a transitional bow like mm-hmm. we were talking about or yeah. a classical bow or a baroque bow but I'm I'm at a point where I'm making all the bows, like even bass bows, and a lot of contemporary makers aren't making okay. bass bows. So very cool. I'm kind of open that way, and because mm. I rehair for so many different people, like I have this very broad array of 
you know, I'd say mostly professional musicians, but it, mm-hmm. it's probably more like 50% professional and then 50% just total enthusiasts. So I'm, I'm not yet known as that, but I think I'm known as being like the, a very solid person to go to for new hair, which is a very simple, humble task, but mm-hmm. like there's enough bad jobs of it that people get nervous about rehairing their bow yeah. something new. So since we're talking about rehairing the bow, one of the questions that I was curious about, and I was I was having a conversation with a friend of mine before um, about the materials used in bow making. I saw something on your website about um, like historically what materials were used. And you said something about um, how the only thing that you haven't figured out uh, a non-animal alternative for is the hair itself. Right. And so this is just out of total curiosity, where does the hair come from? It's horse hair. I mean, are there places that specialize in, is it? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the hair in the world, I mean, like horse hair products that are used for brushes and I mean, even wigs etc it comes through a town in china called anping hmm. and they've i believe have been like a town center of horsehair commerce for like 500 years or something mm-hmm. or longer but um and there's towns like that throughout china where they you know one town will specialize in like blue silken prints and another town you know i guess mm-hmm. that that's typical on like older civilizations, but and, and like in Europe. So okay. in Anping, yeah. they're getting a lot of their hair from um, either Mongolia proper or inner Mongolia. Mm-hmm. And there's, I don't know how many different family businesses, but I would guess a hundred or so in Anping. And I became friends with one family and I met them. I bought hair from their their company for years mm-hmm. and then I met them when I went to Shanghai at this huge violin convention and through talking with them got more insight into how it works but the way they do it is they'll in the fall get in their big old truck and go up to the horse slaughterhouses in inner Mongolia and then there's an auction basically mm-hmm. and they sell off lots of hair. Um, I mean, lots, like meaning a great amount, but also lots, you know, so you can look at them and bid on them. And okay. Then, yeah. Then fill your truck for the year. Mm-hmm. And then you spend that year sorting it, selling it. So. And so um, I'm curious, where are these horses? Um, where were they before? What, I mean, are, were they. I think there's a mix of cultivated and wild horses. Okay. And in, in terms of like bow hair in particular, it's best if the horse is in a sort of tundra situation. Hmm. Okay. Where there, there's a like tough, hardy grass and less like of a less seasonal differentiation. Mm-hmm. This is how I understand it. Like it's all like I'm yet to read a super good clear research article about 
this and I, I'm always wanting to make a video about it something like a little documentary and actually mm -hmm. go there and get into the science of it and mm -hmm. the actual like what's going on here with horse hair mm -hmm. um, but what I understand is that they the best horsehair for bows is coming from the tundra and that the horses don't have like big growth spurts in their hair that would cause the hair to go thicker in one season and thinner in another. Oh, like you would wow. see here, okay. like a big burst of nutrients in the spring mm -hmm. and then less in the winter. So it's consistently sort of thick and strong. Mm -hmm. Apologies if that's totally wrong but that's the sort of hearsay that i've been guiding mm -hmm. you know and it kind of like makes sense to me as well but all the the horse hair um in the world really does come from these these cold sort of tender environments and i think that's why so you'll also see some horse hair from siberia and actually that's my favorite place right now mm -hmm. so i'm I'm only using Siberian hair pretty much. Um, and then Argentina has some hair. And then it used to be Northern Canada had a good horse hair supply. But through NAFTA, there's some trade agreement between America and Canada that said all horses from Canada and America have to go to the same slaughterhouses in Canada. So it means that Canadian horses are all mixed in with american horses and uh -huh. therefore it's harder to like pick out get the right kind oh my god that is so there's so many little details <laughs> that, that weird yeah, yeah that's wild i would have never even thought like you know we were having the conversation with my friend and i and, and he was so wondering you know can you use mule hair can you use pony hair what you know what are the different kinds it does it have to be horse hair and it not only does it have to be horse hair but a very specific super specific yeah, yeah and all that's wow. being impacted by global trade relations and now i think it's being impacted by climate change because mm -hmm. my experience mongolian hair just started being not so good and it's probably from overuse and they're not overuse but a lot more demand in china itself mm -hmm. but i'm kind of guessing that maybe with climate change things are changing in the way grass grows and i don't know exactly how but there's been a major problem with horse hair supply having consistency with it so yeah i'm i mean everything's wrapped up in climate change right now so i'm mm. assume that horses diets are too and yeah therefore, but the demand is also very high wow. there's some synthetic alternatives but i haven't seen or heard one that works out well and also they're made out of as far as i know they're made out of plastic so mm -hmm. i'm kind of like what's more grisly slaughterhouses in mongolia or microplastics mm -hmm. yeah and bird bellies or yeah. microplankton and you know that's an so, excellent point yeah so much minutiae that goes into every little thing that we that that we do in our lives it's fascinating right and these mm -hmm. endless supply chains mm -hmm. all impact each other like the food mm -hmm. chain yeah well this has been really eye-opening thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today and oh yeah thank you yeah for hearing me out 
Yeah. I'm curious. Maybe I maybe I have one more question. I'm curious to know: Is there anything that you think people should know about the work that you do? Maybe that is something that's interesting to you that no one would else would think to ask. Oh well, I think one of the vital things about bow making right now is that. It's another resource um, issue that ties into so many of the most pressing global elements that we face right now. Um, and that's rainforest plunder and the mm. wood that we use to make bows, which is this yeah. very particular, incredible wood called Pernambuco, is being considered now to become completely illegal, like on the scale of elephant ivory. Oh, wow. And there's other cool alternative woods, but Pernambuco is what, you know, the guy, Francois Xavier Tort, I brought up earlier, um, he was one of the, he's credited at least with popularizing or making standard the use of Pernambuco, mm -hmm. which only comes from Brazil. Mm -hmm. And Brazil was named after it. So um, okay. Brazil means fiery red and the wood is fiery red. And it's okay. like the, the primary sort of best dye wood for the color red. So it was it was used a lot as ballast in the ship coming back, and that's how people found it as a bow-making wood. But, hmm. um, yeah, so this wood is being cut down because of deforestation anyway, but it's also there's quite a huge bow market in China and also factories popping up in Brazil, and there's mm -hmm. a black market. And so it's leading to deforestation and Brazil is um, proposing to make the wood completely illegal mm -hmm. for ex export. Mm -hmm. So this summer is a very intense period for a lot of bow makers kind of sitting on the edges of their seat, waiting to see it. The International Resources uh, Committee is going to pass what Brazil is proposing. So it basically means our days of using Pernambuco will be numbered mm -hmm. and that people's hundreds of thousands of dollars investment in the wood will be sort of become contraband. Oh, so, so even the wood that's already cut and purchased and in this country is going to be illegal too? Potentially. Like like you wow. see with ivory, elephant ivory is just... Uh -huh. And also like you saw, or we saw with uh, rosewood, mm -hmm. Brazilian rosewood became illegal a few years ago um and the gibson guitar factory was oh. raided and sort of made an example of wow i didn't um, know about that find and shut down and so you know these resource controls are great mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of it, it's hard for them to do it with anything but a sledgehammer mm -hmm. and uh, unfortunately with that sledgehammer a lot of people who aren't harming the forest directly um, are using very aged wood or getting mm -hmm. uh, taken down in the process. So it's it's a it's a strange balance of like what's more important, traditional craft and the music that comes with it, or the trees and their. Yeah. I mean, I would say the, the trees really because we can find other ways. But mm -hmm. I'm hoping that they find a good balance. Um, yeah, it's a shame they can't find a way to sort of you know, 
document what has what's already been purchased and what's already here but I guess when you're cutting things down and making them into something else there's really no way to do that yeah there's some attempt they're saying if mm -hmm. you have proof that it was acquired before 2007 then it's okay but every anything after that that apparently. was a long time ago <laughs> totally it was like wow. right when I started making so I mean I have $30,000 in Pernambuco that would just become well, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs, really, mm -hmm. honestly. But yeah, uh, so I just wanted to share that in yeah. terms of a unique thing that's on my mind in 2022. Yeah. And we'll see how that plays out. Wow. So, so much to think about. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me. And I wish you the best of luck with all of the changes that are coming and um, I hope it all goes really s as smoothly as possible for you. It sounds like there's a, a lot on the worldwide horizon that's going to affect everything that you do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Okay. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back next Monday. Tune in.